Well, good evening, everybody. It's 9 o'clock, Monday night, and we're here tonight talking about apologetics, as I am wont to do. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Joel Setacase, and I'm coming to you live via Facebook from beautiful Chicago, Illinois. And I say beautiful because today truly was a beautiful day. It was like in the 50s, uh, or at least high, uh, high 40s. And a stark contrast from yesterday when we had spring snowmageddon. Uh, it was crazy. It was actually, there was so much snow that my wife, Elisa, and our two oldest made a snowman in our backyard. A straight up snowman in the middle of April. And But listen, I'm not complaining. In fact, I'll tell you what, it actually bothers me when people complain about the weather. Because it's like, you look, you live in Chicago. You know this is going to happen every April. We all get suckered in. We, if you ever, if you're friends with my brother Parker on Facebook, he always talks about Fool's Spring. Well, we know we're going to get suckered in. It's going to be beautiful for a couple of weeks, and then the middle of April is going to hit, and it's going to be a disaster. And uh, it's going to be like back to November or December again. But I was talking to Elisa about this, and I was complaining about how people complain, and she reminded me, she's like, look, it's a rite of passage. It's part of living in Chicago. What's the point of living in Chicago if you can't complain about the weather, okay? Um, I would say there's a lot of perks to living in Chicago, but, okay, so complaining about the weather is something that we do. Um, doesn't mean it's right, though. Come on, people, it's Chicago. This is what happens with the weather. And you know what? If you don't like it, go out and make a snowman. Make the most of it. But um, that's enough ranting for now. Aaron, what's up, man? Glad you could join us. Larry D., good to see you, man. Jeff DeVries, hey, um, a real a real uh, TV man is joining us. Thanks for joining us, Jeff. Javi, thanks for joining us tonight, man. Um, looking forward to having you as part of this conversation. Chantal, um, is Norman watching with you too? If so, hope so. We're definitely overdue for another Cigars and Bible Night. So if he's not watching, please let him know I said that. And uh, Jerry, what's up, man? Glad you could join us. Um, let's see. Sometimes you just can't have any more snow. I know. I, but you can. If you live in Chicago, look, up until like June 1st, snow is fair game. We know this. Lake Michigan could freeze again. We could get snow. We could get snow in two weeks. It's probably not going to happen, but it could happen. That's that we live in Chicago. That's what happens. I'm not saying I love it, but I do love this city. I love living here. So what are you going to do? Make a snowman. Um, <laughs> all right. I know. It's it's rough. Hi, Holly. Uh, Holly, you're taking a break from giving me feedback on all my logos for the Think Institute and watching this video. Thank you. Cool. I wonder if Paul's joining you. Uh, if so, Paul, what's up? Thanks for joining. Um, Holly, so I, I over on our Center Case Family in Chicago page, which is Elisa and my ministry page here on Facebook, um, I've been test running different logos for the Think Institute, which I'm getting up and running and trying to talking to a couple of different people about designing a logo. I've designed a few myself. And Holly has been giving really great feedback um, on some of those logos. Uh, by the way, Holly, that one with the olive branches, 
I thought that that was like my favorite one until you said it looks very feminine. Now I, I can't unsee that. So that's probably done now. Um, yeah, Larry, golf season needs to start to the glory of God. Man, I don't know. Golf and the glory of God don't really match up for me. Um, it's more like uh, golf is a trial to be endured. I'm not a big golf fan, but I know you are. And so, and I love you anyway, man. Um, Aurora, thanks for joining. Glad you could join the conversation. We're talking tonight about a question and a, an objection to God's existence or, or God's, um, oh, hey, Paul. <laughs> man, I'm so easily distracted. So, uh, yes, it is true, Larry. Yes, it is. Um, okay. Well, maybe this is one of those times when truth is, is relative. Uh, that's the only time you'll ever hear me say that when it comes to golf. Okay. And that's only because I've got friends who like golf. Um, what, what was I talking about? So I, a while ago, ADHD was trending on Twitter. And I'm still convinced ADHD is not a real thing. And why do I say that? Because the person who discovered ADHD right before he died said ADHD was a made up disease. Okay. What do you, what do you want me to say? It's fake. That being said, if ADHD is a real thing, I checked it out and I most likely do have it. I'm not saying it's real. I'm saying that if it's real, I probably have it. And I probably have at least one or two children uh, who have it as well. Steve, what's up, man? Thanks for joining. Um, Sarah, thank you for joining. We're talking tonight about a question and a problem and an objection that is very personal to me. It's very near and dear to my heart. And that is the objection that kind of goes something like this. If God is real and God is good and God is all powerful, then why is this happening to me? Why did God allow blank to happen to me? It's a question that we all ask, or at least are tempted to ask. And uh, we ask this when we're going through trials, when we're going through hard times. And hard times are universal. Everybody goes through hard times. Show me somebody who never goes through hard times in their life, I'll show you a liar. Or someone who's in denial, because we all go through trials and tribulations. It's part of the universal human experience. Now, why I say this is very personal to me is because Over the last few years, over the last five years, six six years, much of my life has been characterized by hardship. And I don't say that I'm not I'm not exaggerating. I don't think I'm I'm not trying to present myself as any kind of a victim. I think hopefully that'll come out over the next uh, several minutes as we're talking. But I, this is very personal to me, going back all the way to really early on in Elisa and my marriage. Actually, when we first started out as parents, our oldest was uh, 18, 19 months old. We had two kids at the time, Jacob and Fia were both born. And um, hi, Heidi, thanks for joining, joining the conversation. Uh, we're talking about suffering tonight. And we're talking about how it's a common objection. If God is good and God is all powerful, God is real, why is he allowing me to go through this experience, this traumatic experience. So back, so this was back in 2013. Um, I had just started out as a pastor. 
and I was uh, I wasn't even a youth pastor yet. I was a pastor in training. And Jacob contracted MRSA. He got a potentially fatal MRSA infection. The way where it was located and and um, uh, the the character of the MRSA, it was potentially um, fatal. Uh, Sharon Goldman, hi. Thanks for joining the conversation, Lindsay. Thanks for joining. Sorry, you can't view. I'm not sure why. Is anybody else having that problem where you can't see me? I can see me. Um, I don't know. Maybe open it up in a new browser browser window or something. Actually, Larry Dolendi is the guy I go to for troubleshooting for stuff like that, and he's watching this video. So, Larry, maybe you can troubleshoot Sharon Goldman's uh, experience here, why she can't see me. Maybe it's a bad connection. So, Jacob made it out of that. MRSA infection. Uh, he did have to undergo kind of a light surgery, but we had to spend a few days in the hospital. It, as new parents, new parents of two kids, it was pretty traumatic and we didn't have a whole lot of experience in the hospital. But then uh, shortly after that, actually, let's see, that was 20, summer 2013. And then in um, January of 2014, January 2014, Alisa was, is that right? Alisa was pregnant with Lucas, and we found out that she had thyroid cancer. And so now our experience of being in the hospital and dealing with hardship went from sort of minor, sort of, we can get through this pretty, it's not, it was the hardest thing we'd gone through, but it was easy in comparison. Now all of a sudden, Alisa's got cancer. Now, if you, if you know anything about thyroid cancer, Thyroid cancer, they call it the Cadillac of cancers. If you're going to get cancer, thyroid cancer is the one you want to get. This, the procedure was simple. It was a thyroidectomy. There's supposed to be a follow-up of radi radioactive iodine. At least it didn't even, didn't even do that. She was fine. She had her thyroid taken out, and now she's got to take a few pills. Um, her levels have gone up and down since that time. It hasn't been easy, but... We made it through thyroid cancer, but uh, I wouldn't wish it on anybody, especially um, on a husband, to have your wife go through that. It's, it's very hard. Um, but then in 2015, we got the shock of our life. In 2015, in June 18th, 2015, I was at home. Alisa was... Uh, at the doctor's office with Lucas. She'd been in there for a few hours. We thought Lucas, he was 10 months old at the time. This is our third born. And we thought maybe he had a an infection of some sort. Uh, he His symptoms were, he was feeling grouchy. He had some other symptoms. But um, I'll never forget it. I was in the basement at our house. We had just bought this house in Aurora, Illinois. And Elisa tells me, the doctors think he has leukemia and we've got to rush him by ambulance to Lurie Children's Hospital. And at that time, it was like, it felt like the ceiling started caving in on me and the floor started sloping down and it felt like I lost all bearings of reality. I, I couldn't tell emotionally which way was up, which way was down. Uh, I felt just very... Um, traumatized by the experience. Um, the next 30 days were a fight for our son's life. We were very grateful that we had an amazing team, Dr. Morgan, 
Dr. Elaine Morgan at Larry Children's Hospital and um, her team have done a phenomenal job. But we, we didn't know what was going to happen to Lucas for those first 30 days. Well, we made it out of those 30 days. And then it was just a matter of a two-year protocol of chemotherapy. And God willing, we were hoping that at the end of that time, Lucas would be fine and we'd be able to move on with our lives. Well, during that time, Lucas developed an allergic reaction to lactose. And there was a period of time in there. We didn't know what was wrong with him, but he was incredibly sick vomiting all the time. I'll spare you the details, but he was wasting away and it was very traumatic. But we found out what was wrong and we made it through the two years of his protocol. Well, three months after he made it out of his protocol and uh, we were on a little vacation down in Indiana, um, we found out that his chemo had come back. And I'm skipping over some details here, but that was like a kick to the chest. Now we had to deal with not only had he gone through chemo for two years, but now it was back and now it was actually back in his central nervous system behind his, his eye. Uh, this was going to mean radiation. This was going to mean another two years of chemo. Um, this was not going to be any kind of walk in the park. And um, during this time, I'll spare you the details, but uh, there were a couple of times where I lost my job in that, over these three years, four years, three years. Um, and yet we saw God provide through those situations um, and lead us to each next step. It wasn't easy, but we saw him providing for us. Um, the people of God came around us, friends and family came around us in some incredible ways. Um, but it was very traumatic, very, very hard. Well, we are now nearing what should be the end of this experience with Lucas's chemo. He should be done with everything in July of this year, 2019. That'll have been four years of cancer, uh, four years of chemo, radiation, Lurie Children's Hospital, four years of questions and 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 prayer and just trying to keep our son alive um but uh this past february february 14th we checked lucas into the hospital for a totally new problem um and as far as we can tell this is this new problem is completely unrelated to his um cancer whatsoever and uh, hi sarah uh dm Corey, thanks for joining um we're talking about suffering and the existence of God tonight. So on February 14th, Lucas was checked in again to Lurie Children's Hospital. And over the next five weeks, um, we found out that he has been experiencing heart failure. As far as we can tell, this is unrelated to his chemo, his radiation, his leukemia. Um, I have a hard time believing that. I think it must be related, but there's nothing definitive. And um, his heart failure at this point has not improved. Um, yes, we can keep his heart function going. We can keep his heart function stable. If he's on a particular medicine, if he, which is one that he can only get through IV, which means he is stuck in the hospital. Even as we speak, as I, as I record this video, my son is in the hospital right now with Elisa. Um, and uh, 
as a result of this, I experienced the most traumatic experience of my entire life. And, um, oh, hi, Sherry. Thanks for joining. Kim, thanks for joining. And uh, George, I'm glad you guys are, are with us tonight. So um, a few weeks ago, about a month ago, I had come down to the hospital and uh, I was hanging out in the family great room on um, the 22nd floor of Larry Children's Hospital, which is the cardiac care unit. And Elisa sent me a text. She said, please come back. Lucas is coding. And if you know what that means, you don't want to, you don't want to get a text like that. If you're coding, that's not a good thing. So I dropped what I was doing. I ran from the family great room on floor 22, ran all the way back to his room, 2211, and saw a sight that you never want to see in the cardiac care unit or, or in any floor in the children's hospital. And that is a cloud of doctors and nurses surrounding Lucas's room, a bunch of white coats and scrubs surrounding the room. So I pushed my way past everybody, went into the room, and there was Lucas unconscious. He was passed out. The doctors were surrounding him. And I found out that his heart had stopped and they were trying to bring him back to life. Uh, and it was not clear whether or not he was going to make it. Um, what had happened was the top half of his heart essentially had stopped communicating electronic electrically with the bottom half of his heart. Uh, the heart is, is electric and, um, it relies on communication between the top half and the bottom half in order to continue to function. Well, the top half had stopped communicating with the bottom half. And because of that, his heart had stopped. And so it, um, there's Elisa and the doctors all gathered around him. Um, I gathered around him and, man, we're praying. And um, thankfully, they were able to, to save his life, to bring him back to life. Um, not something that I will ever forget. Um, it, it was very harrowing. And um, like I said, the most traumatic experience of my entire life. There was a point in time where I just didn't know if, if, if uh, my son was going to survive. And there have been a few other experiences like that over the last several, a few months as Lucas has been in the hospital. Um, my thoughts are a little scattered right now. Uh, I've got some notes here, of course, but uh, this is, I'm, I'm sharing an experience which uh, was very traumatic. So now all of this has been going on since February 14th and really since uh, June of 2015. And, and really it's sort of been this endless progression of sort of more and more um, uh, greater and greater suffering and trials and tribulations in our lives, really going back to 2013. And one of the questions people constantly ask me is, you know, I see him at church or I, you know, I reconnect with people. Hey, Joel, how you doing? How you holding up? And um, I get the question. I, under I understand the question. How would anybody be doing in a circumstance like this? And another thing people tell me oftentimes is, um, man, I don't know how you do it. I don't know how you stay strong. I don't know how you keep the faith. If it were me, I couldn't do it. Well, listen, I completely understand that. Um, I remember before entering into this period of trials and tribulations, family health crises, I remember thinking, looking at people who are going through similar circumstances and thinking, 
I could never go through a circumstance like that. I, I could ne- I wouldn't be able to to withstand. I would break down. I, I I don't I I'm not strong enough to be able to withstand and to stay strong. Um, and you know what? I wasn't at that time. And so I completely understand that sentiment when people tell me that. But how how do I keep the faith? How does Elisa um, keep the faith? How how are we able to still keep our faith in God strong throughout all these crises. And, and really there's a, there's a deeper question here, and this is where I want to get to the objection um, that people face when we go through crises like this. Because this is traumatic. I don't want to write this off. I, I will never write this off as if this isn't uh, traumatic or as if I haven't asked you know, questions like, why is God doing this during this time? Because there seems to be an inconsistency here. The idea is, if God is good and loving, and God is all-powerful, God can do whatever he wants, and God loves me, then why is God allowing Lucas to go through this? Why did God allow Elisa get, to get cancer? Why did God allow Jacob to get mercy? And why, why did God allow all these things to happen to my family? And, you know... Why did God allow, why didn't God let, why wasn't I the one to suffer? You know, I, I, when, a Luke, when Lucas first got diagnosed, I remember laying prostrate on the floor of the chapel at Lurie Children's and just praying, God, if at all possible, take this from Lucas, give it to me. You know, if it's me, I can handle that, you know, but not my son. And... So this is very this is very personal um, for me. This question: Why did God allow? Why does God allow suffering to take place? And in and does the Bible provide resources to deal with this? Does the Bible provide an answer to this question, or are we all just supposed to just sort of hang on by blind faith and just sort of white knuckle this and say, "I don't have any answers, and I can just." Um, hope against hope. I'm going to hope against the evidence here. I'm going to have faith, even in spite of the evidence, that God is somehow good. Well, the long and short of it is this. There are good answers. The Bible provides good answers. We don't have to step outside of Scripture in order to find the answers to the question, if God is good, if God is all-powerful, if God is loving, then why am I going through this pain and suffering? The Bible provides us with the answers. And that's what I want to look at tonight. So first, let's look at some some answers that are not good answers. Um, First, real quick, Neil. Hey, man, thanks for joining. Wow. Neil, great to hear from you, man. Uh, Neil and I taught together at Chicago Hope Academy back in the day, like 10 years ago. And uh, Neil is one of the most fascinating people you're ever going to meet. His geography game show is... uh, it teaches kids geography and um, does it in this incredible way. Also, Neil is a unique character. This is a guy who who runs up to lions in the wild and puts his arm around him. Um, Neil's like the closest that I've ever met, like the, the closest thing I've ever met to uh, meeting the crocodile hunter in person, basically. Fascinating guy. Kelly, thank you so much for joining. Joe, thank you. Um, Sarah Stone, I'm so glad that you're joining us uh, in this conversation. Guys, feel free to to comment. I'm going to try to address any comments or 
questions people have uh, as we go here. But um, first of all, some answers that are, these are not good answers. Okay, the, the, these are some answers that the Bible does not allow us to, um, to go there. Okay, the first one is this, God is not good. Um, the Bible just doesn't allow for us to say, well, God is just not good. See, in Psalm 145, verse 9, and actually I've got several Bible verses that I'm going to be addressing here. And if you look at the description of today's video, that first link there um, is a link to Bible Gateway. If you click on that, the very first link in the video description, you'll get to all the Bible verses that I'm going to be discussing today. Or at least I'm going to try to try to get to them. We're 24 minutes in at this point. So I think we'll get to most of them. But in Psalm 145, verse 9, the Bible says that God is good to all. He's good to everyone, and his compassion rests on all he has made. And then in Mark chapter 10, verse 18, the context of this is Jesus has uh, someone come up to him and say, good teacher, you know, and he asks him this question. And Jesus goes, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So when you put those two verses together, what we find is that the Bible teaches that not, not only is God good, but only God is good. God is actually the very standard for goodness himself. And so if we're going to say God is not good, then we have no standard for goodness at all. And if we're talking about the pain and the suffering that we experience in our lives as being in any way evil or not good, that only makes sense against the backdrop of the perfect standard of God's goodness. And so to even ask the question, why are these bad things happening to me, presumes, it, it presupposes that there is a standard of goodness, that these things are not meeting, are not matching. So we can't say that God is not good. It just is not an option for us. Um, and whether you're a believer or unbeliever, you have to ask the question, good compared to what standard? And the Bible is the only um, holy book or any the only foundation that there is for goodness in any kind of objective way. Mm. And Joe, I see that comment. Yeah, it, it's amazing how God deals with our idols through trials. One of the reasons he allows and uses sufferings is to reveal the sin in our lives that we need to kill. So true. And Joe, you're actually um, hitting on something that I'm going to talk about in a, in a couple of minutes. But we can't say that God is not good. We also can't say that God is not all-powerful. See, sometimes people, there's a common defense to the problem of evil in the world and in our lives where people say, well, you know, God's trying. He's trying his very best. But there are, God's got other priorities. Um, you see, maybe God just wants there to be free will. Maybe God's biggest priority in life is free will. And so God's got to allow people to have free will. And, and, and so God can't have free will because God can't be sovereign because God has given up his sovereignty to man. Um, hopefully, if you are a believer, you see the problem with that. The idea that God would, would give more glory and more sovereignty to his creatures than to himself. The Bible just doesn't allow us to, to say that. Um, in Matthew 19, verse 26, Jesus says that even if something were impossible with man, with God, all things are possible. And so there's this deep contrast between the will of man and the will of God. The will of man can be defeated. The will of God can never be defeated. And um, so free will is not is not an adequate defense for the suffering and pain in our lives. And even if we were to say, well, um, you know, uh, you know, leukemia, that's not caused by the will of man, but maybe it's caused by the will of Satan. Well, all throughout Scripture, we see God trumping the will of Satan. 
Satan's will does not trump God's sovereignty. And so we can't, we can't go there as well. Uh, so we can't say that God is not all powerful. Um, now, what about the idea that sin is punishment? I'm sorry, the suffering is punishment. You know, that's an option as well. And we do see in scripture, we do see God punishing sin. We see that in the way that he um, causes uh, the nation of Israel to go under subjugation from a foreign people or even to be exiled. Now, the interesting thing about this is that we see that in Old Covenant Israel. But even now in Old, in Old Covenant Israel, we've, what we come to find in the New Testament, the book of Romans, chapter chapters 9 through 11, is that not all who are ethnically Israel, even in the Old Testament, are part of God's chosen people, his elect. And so God's going to deal differently with Old Covenant Israel than he is with believers under the New Covenant. But even with Old Covenant Israel, what we find is that God disciplines his people, but the goal of his discipline is to restore them. And Joe, this is, I think, what you were getting at, is that God, in pain, in suffering, oftentimes he does discipline us and he does address our idols um, but if you're a child of God, if you've been united to God by faith in Jesus Christ, then the way that God deals with you is not through wrath, because the wrath has been poured out on Jesus Christ. And so in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, it says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean that God doesn't discipline us, because in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 4 through 12, it's, it talks about how God disciplines his children. And God is a good father. He does discipline. And uh, let me read what, what it says. It says, My son, do not take the Lord's discipline lightly or lose heart when you are reproved by him. To reprove is to rebuke. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and punishes every son he receives. Now the emphasis there is on the fact that if God is disciplining you, that's actually a sign that he loves you and that he accepts you as a son. But why do we discipline our kids? We discipline them not to destroy them, but actually to strengthen them. We discipline them to build them up, to teach them, to teach them to reject evil and choose what is good. And so 2 Corinthians 7.10 says that the, the uh, it says a godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. And the Apostle Paul contrasts that with worldly grief. He says that worldly grief produces death. Now, why do I mention all these Bible verses? What I'm getting at is this. If you are a follower of Christ, now remember, we're looking at a biblical defense of God's existence and God's goodness and God's all-powerfulness, his omnipotence, in light of suffering. And uh, hey, Sean, glad you could join us, man. We're talking about suffering tonight, and does the existence of suffering in my life or in your life disprove the biblical teaching of God, that he's good and he's all-powerful and that he loves his people. So 2 Corinthians 7.10 hits at this. It's that if God is bringing suffering into your life as a result of sin, if you are his child, if you've been united to God by faith, then that suffering is not to destroy you, but to bring you to repentance. And to... to um, uh, Romans, uh, Joe says Romans 5 comes to mind as well. Joe, can you explain what you mean by that? Um, I'm rifling through those verses in my head. Uh, wh what do you mean? Uh, sin entered the world through one man, the one act of righteousness. The gift is not like the trespass. Yeah, please feel free to expound on that, Joe. Uh, Joe is one of the pastors at uh, uh, Arbor Drive 
um, Baptist church, community church. I should know this, but it's in York, um, York, Nebraska. And he's also one of the hosts of the uh, Pastor Discussion podcast, Pastor Discussions podcast, which I was a guest on a few weeks ago. Um, so, yes, suffering can root out sin and evil in our lives. And guys, I got to tell you, over the last three years, God has done a number on me. Man, he has sanctified me through the suffering that he's allowed me to experience. Um, big time. I mean, maybe you've experienced this too. But here's, so specifically, we're talking tonight about Lucas's cancer and his heart failure. And I've wrestled with this. Is that punishment on me in my life? Well, uh, Ezekiel 18.20 says that the, the son shall not bear his father's iniquity. In other words, the son will not be punished for the sins of the father. Now, I find that incredibly comforting. Because on the one hand, Lucas's suffering is suffering in my own life. And in that regard, God can use that to discipline me. And he has. But Lucas is not being punished for my sin. Scripture makes that abundantly clear. And so, um, so then what's the answer? Why has God allowed my family to go through this? Why does God allow you to go through the hardship and the trials? Now, I'm, I'm speaking, remember, this is a biblical answer. So I'm talking to people who are followers of Jesus, those who have repented and trusted in Christ. Because if we're going to take the Bible's answers, then we need to take his answers, God's answers in Scripture all the way. Now. God does not have any, God does not offer a hopeful answer for unrepentant sinners. We're going to see that in a few minutes, but God is not holding out some kind of hope for those who are still uh, shaking their fist at God and, and keeping God at arm's length. I'm, going to, I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit, but, but um, and I don't say that to be insensitive in any way, but the Bible is very clear that there is only one way to get right with God. God is incredibly loving, incredibly compassionate, incredibly gracious. He is incredibly powerful. He is in, he but he is also sovereign. And he is a, the judge of all the earth. And he will do what is right and God cannot leave sin unpunished. And in a few minutes we're going to talk about how does God punish sin? And there's really only two ways that God punishes sin. He punishes sin in the life of the sinner or in the life of uh, in, rather in the death of Christ. And we'll we'll get into that. Um, in a few minutes. Okay, so Joe says the thought behind rejoicing in our suffering because it produces a deeper hope in God, verses three through five. It reveals areas where we are hoping in ourselves and not in him. Man, amen. Thanks for explaining that, Joe. So, all right. Now, does the Bible provide an adequate answer for why we experience suffering? Well, what we're about to see is that the Bible is not caught off guard by our suffering. Rather, the Bible prepares us for suffering. And we're going to look at three stories really quickly to see that the, the Bible is rife. We, we could list several examples, um, dozens of examples, of examples of suffering that God not only uses, but actually plans in the life of his people for a greater good. The first example is the story of Joseph. You can get the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis. I think it's like verse uh, chapters 37 through 50, somewhere in there. 
And uh, now this is Joseph in the Old Testament. This is not the father of Jesus. There's more than one Joseph in Scripture. And um, actually, there's there's more than one. Uh, there's a lot of names in Scripture that pop up more than once. Like, like Mary. Uh, you know, do a quick search of the word Mary. And there's like 50 bazillion Marys in Scripture. But there's at least two Josephs. And uh, this is the Joseph in the Old Testament. And this is a guy who, you know what? I mean, talk about an innocent man. I mean, this is a guy, okay, he was his dad's favorite. But that's not really his fault, all right? And then he starts getting these dreams where his mom and his dad and his brothers are going to be bowing down to him. Now, he just has these dreams. He didn't ask for the dreams. The dreams come from God. But his his uh, father and mother call him out on this. And his brothers end up hating him. It, it, he's, he's, uh, he's eventually sold into slavery by his brothers. And as if that wasn't bad enough, he's later falsely accused of sexual assault and put in prison and left there to rot. And through the course of his story, we see him reach an incredible low point, a viciously low, terrible low point. I mean, this is a guy who's treated completely unjustly. He is suffering not for any sin that he's committed, but really um, in spite of all of his goodness and his righteousness in his life. But what happens is um, Joseph is just kind of along for the ride as God takes him into prison. And then um, through the connections he makes in prison, he ends up being lifted up and promoted to the number two spot in the kingdom of Egypt. This is incredible. His story is unbelievable. And at the end of the story, he comes face to face with his brothers again. His brothers who have sold him into slavery, who are responsible for all the hardship he's experienced in his life. And in Genesis 50, 20, they come trembling before Joseph. This is a guy who can now completely destroy them, make their lives miserable, throw them to the lions if, you know, uh, have them executed if he wants to. But look what he says in Genesis 50, verse 20. He says, you planned evil against me. God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. See, as Joseph was promoted to this position, he was able, through that position, to save many thousands of people um, during a famine that took place in the land. And so what I find fascinating about that verse is Joseph doesn't say, you planned this for evil, but God used it for good. Instead, he says, you planned it for evil. And then he uses the exact same verb. He says, God planned it for good. You planned it, God planned it. Not God used it. Not God turned it. Not God turned the tables and, and, and uh, man, God just, you know, he was playing the, 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 the cards he was dealt. No, God planned it from the very beginning to use it for good. It's the exact same verb. It's the same action. It's the same event. God planned for Joseph to be sold into slavery. Now, does that mean that it was somehow good, that the action that they took to sell him into slavery was good? Or that him being falsely accused of sexual assault was good? No, far from it. And yet it was part of God's plan. God planned for evil people to do evil things in order to bring about salvation of many lives. Well, we get another example of 
God's sovereignty over evil in the book of Job. And I'm not going to get into this right now because Job, I mean, man, you, you got to unpack this entire book. It's 42 chapters long. It is some of the finest poetry of the ancient world. Um, it's an ancient, ancient book. Um, many scholars think that it's actually the oldest book in the New Testament. It's one of the oldest books of antiquity. But in the book of Job, here you've got a man who was completely blameless. Scripture makes it clear. This is a guy who didn't do anything wrong. In fact, he prayed for his kids. He offered sacrifices for his kids. Parents, can I get an amen? I mean, he was praying for his kids and just raising his kids in the fear of the Lord. And, and just in case they ever disobeyed God, Job was constantly offering sacrifices on their behalf. And then in a single day, all of his children are killed. He had 10 kids and they were all killed in a single day when the roof where they were eating and drinking collapsed on them. As if that wasn't bad enough, Job, who was incredibly wealthy, lost all of his fame, uh, all of his fortune, uh, all of his livestock, all of his investments. It all came to nothing. And then shortly thereafter, he lost his health. Uh, he came down with a horrible skin disease. And it says that he went from being incredibly rich and prominent in the ancient world to sitting down and letting the dogs lick his sores. And then his own wife, came to him and said, are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. This is a man who had every reason to ask God why. And in the course of the book of Job, he is confronted by his friends who, instead of offering him comfort, they offer him very cold comfort. And they essentially say to Job, Job, you're suffering because of your own sin. In fact, they are angry and indignant at Job for refusing to admit that he had sinned, and that is why God was punishing him. See, they've got this idea of God that if you are good, God will reward you in this life, and if you're bad, God will punish you, and Job is clearly being punished, so Job must have sinned. How many of us have felt that way? Well, I'm going through this terrible trial. God must be angry at me, because otherwise God would be blessing me. How many of us have felt that way when we look at the suffering of other people's life? You know, I've had people tell me that God is going to heal Lucas if I just have enough faith. And if I pray with enough faith, God will heal him. What's the implication of that? The implication of that is that if Lucas is not healed, it's my fault. I don't have enough faith. Man, I have searched my heart over the last three years. And I've searched the scriptures. And I have tried to figure out, does the Bible teach that if I don't have enough faith that God will do something, that he won't do it? And my friends, as I look in the scriptures, here's what I see. Jesus does reprimand and rebuke certain people for their lack of faith. But it's a lack of faith that God can do something, not that God will do something. See, even Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane before he was killed, Father, if it be your will, let this cup be taken from me. When we pray for deliverance from a trial, the proper, the Christ-like attitude is always to say, I believe that you can do this 
but I don't know if you will. And whether you do or you don't, I still trust you. It's not a question of can God do something. With God, all things are possible. It's a question of will God do it? Is it in his good will? Now, okay, George, you're saying how often do followers and others, of course, mis uh, misunderstand or misinterpret God's actions? We train our bodies and that causes pain, yet we expect and work through the pain. No pain, no gain. Our free will sure can cause many detours, yes. Uh, but when it's spiritual growth, we are less accepting of the discomforts and trials. Yeah, absolutely, right. Um, God does bring... I, talked about that earlier. God brings trials into our life for spiritual growth, to root out sin in our life. Absolutely. Um, but sometimes it's not a result of sin. Sometimes it's something completely different. Sometimes we'd never have an explanation. And here's the, bringing this back to Job. Job didn't doubt that God could bring him out of his trial. In fact, he actually says, I know my Redeemer lives. And when I have um, perished, I'm misquoting this, but he says, when I've perished from the earth, I will see my Redeemer in the flesh. Now, the incredible thing about this is that Job had a faith that even if his trials killed him, one day he would be resurrected, and with his own eyes, he would see God. He would see his Redeemer. Job had a faith that there would be a Messiah who would come, and that there would be a resurrection. And for Job, his hope was not in deliverance in this life, even though he knew God could do it. His hope was in the next life, in the resurrection. And uh, I don't want to get too far afield here. I'm not going to talk about the afterlife hill, but or here, but um, maybe that's maybe that's for another time. Um, so where are we? So what's the answer that Job receives? If you look at chapters 38 through 42 of the book of Job. God actually comes in, the, in a whirlwind and he speaks to Job and he, he doesn't give him an explanation. He doesn't say, well, Satan came to me and Satan said he wanted to test you and all this stuff. No. Instead, he says, where were you, Job, when I laid the foundations of the, the world? You know, where were you when I decided uh, that the horse was going to be an animal that would be, um, that would go bravely into battle? Or I designed the Leviathan, which is essentially a dinosaur, a living dinosaur, or the behemoth, which is another living dinosaur. Look it up. Yes, there are dinosaurs in the Bible. That's another, maybe I just blew some of your minds, but go read the book of Job. It's awesome. Um, but uh, where were you when I designed these incredible creatures? And where were you when I decided where the snow was going to come from, where the hail was going to be reserved for the day of, of battle? Um, and what can Job say? Job, all that Job can answer in verse one, verses 1 through 8 of chapter 42, Job says, I know that you can do anything and that no plan of yours can be thwarted. Okay, see, there's the belief in God's ability, his omnipotence. But he continues, you asked, who is this who conceals my counsel with ignorance? Surely I spoke about things I did, did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now, and I will speak. When I question you, you will inform me. I had heard reports about you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I reject my words and am sorry for them. I am dust and ashes. See, Job, when Job comes face to face with God, 
He never gets a full explanation for his suffering. But he, he realizes that God's ways are higher than his. And he shuts his mouth. The incredible thing then is in verses 7 and 8 of that same chapter, God then turns to Job's friends and rebukes them for speaking falsely against him, for saying, for teaching Job and, and rebuking Job for supposedly sinning. What God is saying is, look, I don't just punish people. I don't just let hardship come into people's lives because of their sin. Sometimes people go through hardship in their life for a reason where I don't have, I don't have to disclose to them what it is. And don't think that you are so high and lofty that you can figure out exactly what the reason is every time. You are just a man. I am God. I am higher than you. And I don't have to give an explanation to you. And so oftentimes when we go through suffering, we are left with that, that answer from God. All we can do is, is we read the book of Job and we say, well, I, I don't know why this is happening. I've searched my heart. I've prayed. I've, I've repented. I've, I've looked for any besetting sin. I've repented of that sin. I've prayed with extreme faith, and yet God will still not deliver me. Why? Why won't? I've asked this question so many times. Why is Lucas still suffering? Why doesn't God heal his heart? And all I can do, my friends, is, is put myself in the place of Job and say, I spoke of things that I didn't understand. Things too wonderful for me. He is God, I'm not. And I repent in dust and ashes. Now, Job had a hope of a coming Savior. But Job didn't have the full story the way we have it today. And so there's one more story I want to look at. I've got a few minutes left. And that is, um, oh, hey, Betty, thanks for joining. And uh, Sarah Williams, Sarah Bailing Williams, Miss, formerly Miss Bailing, as I knew you back in seventh grade. Um, uh, and now, of course, um, Mrs. Williams, Sarah. I guess we're both adults now. I can call you Sarah. Uh, Sarah Williams was one of the teachers at Glen Westlake Middle School when I was there. So uh, uh, it's always, Facebook is a weird thing. You reconnect with people. It's very cool. Um, Greg Wilson, good friend, says, my thought process is often critical in my trial. When I don't understand the trial, my tendency is to think negatively about the trial. What caused the situation? I blame myself. I blame the perpetrator. I blame evil. I blame, blame a hypocritical church or my circumstance. Um, yes, I'm blaming God, but would never say it. Yeah, I hear you. Man, and okay, so Greg, you're, you're getting towards the gospel. And that's exactly where I want to get next. So I want to ask you a question. Everybody watching, what is the greatest evil that has ever taken place in the world? The worst thing that has ever happened in human history. Do you know? There's some of us might be tempted to say, well, the Holocaust. Unbelievably evil. Or, you know, how many genocides have there been in human history? Or uh, modern-day abortion, you know, slaughtering of the innocents. Um, but do you know what the worst thing that's ever happened in human history is? Is the execution, the murder of the one truly good and innocent person who's ever lived. The one truly pure and innocent person who's ever lived was Jesus Christ. Jesus was accused of things that he never did. He was beaten uh, within inches of his life. He was brutalized. 
spat on, tormented, tortured, and ultimately nailed to a cross. A cross he did not deserve. A cross that was reserved by the most brutal empire of antiquity, uh, the Romans, uh, designed they designed crucifixion to be the most humiliating possible form of torment and torture uh, a death that would leave you gasping for air for days your skin flayed um, your body exposed to the elements and to public ridicule um, there was no hope there was only embarrassment and pain and torture and you exited this world in the most brutal possible way imaginable. And that is what Jesus experienced. And he was the one truly innocent person. It was the worst evil that, that ever happened. Yeah, George, exactly. Calvary, when Jesus died on the cross. And so if we're going to ask the question, why does God allow pain and suffering in the world? We have to go to the worst instance of pain and suffering the worst example of evil that's ever taken place, and that is the death of the Son of God. Well, it's in the death of Jesus that we find our answer. We find the answer to this question of, is if God is good and if God is all-powerful and all-loving, why does God allow evil and suffering and pain in the world? Why did God allow this in my life? So, the events leading up to the crucifixion of Jesus were um, Jesus was betrayed, and then there was a conspiracy between Herod and Pontius Pilate and the, uh, the Jewish religious leaders and the Gentiles, and they all conspired together uh, evilly um, in, in order to, to crucify Jesus. But in Acts chapter 4, verses 28 through 31, if you have your Bible, take a look at this. Here's the Apostle Peter, and he's, he's praying publicly. And here's what he says. He's praying to God, and actually I'm going to go back to, to verse 27. All right, so here's what Peter says. He says, for in fact, he's in Jerusalem, he says, in this city, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, assembled together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed to do whatever your hand and your will had predestined to take place. So Peter is saying that Pilate and the Gentiles and the people of Israel, they all conspired together. They used their quote-unquote free will. Their, they made a free decision to betray and ruin Christ, and yet they were doing exactly what God had predetermined they would do. So you see, they it's just like in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. They planned it for evil, and God planned it for good. The exact same event was planned by them and by God. One was planning it for evil, and yet at the very same time, God had predestined that it take place and planned it and, and carried it out, made sure that it was carried out exactly to his specifications so that when Jesus was dying on the cross, it wasn't just an innocent man dying on the cross, but it was the Son of God taking on himself in his flesh the condemnation deserved by all his people. Fulfilling the prophecy 
all the prophecies of the Old Testament and the prophecy that the angel made to Mary and Joseph when he said, you will call him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That was fulfilled when Jesus died on the cross. All right, it looks like the video cut out for a minute. Did everybody, anybody else get the video cut out? All right, look, well, it looks like we're back up now. Um, how interesting that the, the video cuts out right as, I'm, right as I'm getting to the gospel. But here's the point. The, the, the Bible presents us with the resources to deal with incredible pain and suffering that doesn't seem to have an end and doesn't seem to have an answer. Because the Bible presents a God who suffers with us, who suffers wrongly, who suffers unjustly, and through that suffering redeems all his people and, and also redeems the suffering of his people. And so you can turn to Hebrews chapter 11, where you've got the hall of faith. Okay, good. It looks like the video stayed up for many people. That's good. Um, you go to Hebrews chapter 11, and it talks about the heroes of the Old Testament. Many of them were delivered and rescued by their faith. My mom and I were actually talking about this the other day. But many of them died. But they died in faith. They died in faith that the coming Messiah was going to make everything right, that, that our hope and our home was, uh, was not in this world but in the world to come. And so that's why we can go to Revelation chapter 7. Let's see. Revelation chapter 7 talks about, or chapter 12, verse 11. It says that the saints, the, the people of God, overcame Satan by not loving their lives, even to the point of death. I want to read this. In chapter 12, verse 11 of the book of Revelation. Here's what it says. They conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they did not love their lives to the point of death. The way that we conquer as followers of Christ is by laying down our lives for Jesus, even to the point of death. And if God wants our suffering to lead to death, well, it wouldn't be the first time that happened to someone who is precious and beloved by God. He did the exact same thing to his own son. And when we trust in Jesus, it's, it's like putting on a pair of glasses for the first time um, and, and living our entire lives legally blind. We see everything. Everything comes into focus. And so why do I have faith? Why does Lisa have faith? Even though Lucas uh, doesn't seem to be getting any better. I'm praying that he gets better. And I know thousands of people are praying that he gets better. And I'm grateful for that. And, I, and when you share your prayer request with me, I want to pray for you that things get better. But my hope is ultimately not in that. My hope instead comes from Jesus Christ, the one who suffered for me. And I'm hoping that Revelation chapter 21 will be fulfilled. And I believe that it will be. Verse 3, it says this, Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain, and leukemia, and heart failure, and divorce, and diabetes, 
and poverty and hatred will be no more. Sin will be no more and all of its consequences will be no more. Because the previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne, and this is Jesus, he says, look, I am making everything new. So does the Bible provide the resources to believe in God in spite of and in the face of incredible hardship and pain? Yes, absolutely. In fact, only the Bible provides the categories for even understanding good and evil. Look, when you feel pain, when you feel hardship, or when you feel when when you suffer, the Bible is, is um, the Bible provides a framework for that, and and God is not shouting at you from heaven saying, "Get your act together and become a stoic." Uh, you know, pain is not really pain. Instead, God is 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 a God who comes down and suffers with you and suffers on your behalf and says, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. And even if this suffering leads to death, Joel, even if your son doesn't make it out of this ordeal in this life, you have to trust me that I am good and I am all powerful and I am real and I am with you. And I've got this. That is a God that I can follow. That is a God that I can have faith in no matter what. Where would I be without God? How could I possibly go through the trials and tribulations of life without God? I couldn't. And it's not like these things would just go away. See, that's the thing. Failing to believe in God, rejecting God, doesn't make pain go away. It, it only undercuts our ability to deal with them. So I don't believe in God because he works, because belief in God somehow works, or because it's pragmatic. I believe in God because he's revealed himself to me in the scriptures. And when I compare scripture with the real world, and when I compare what the Bible says with my own experience in my own life, and what Jesus has done for me, the hope that he's given me, it makes sense. It, it matches up. And it's impossible for it not to be true. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus Christ. I would strongly urge you and plead with you to discover Christ in the Bible. Open up the Gospel of Mark. Open up the Gospel of Luke. And just read. Read these passages that I talked about tonight and see that the Bible not only provides a framework for believing in God, but provides an incredible hope and an incredible peace in the midst of suffering that just transcends our understanding. And so that is why we have peace and joy in the midst of our trials. It's all because of Jesus. It's all because of God's word. Um, so thank you for watching. I hope this was helpful. Um, uh, George says, look where the world's going as God's being removed from secular society. Yeah, absolutely. You're right. You're right. George, that's why we've got to tell people about Jesus, man, because we are in society, and God's placed us here to do that. Um, Candace, thanks for the, the kind words and uh, the amen. And uh, thanks for watching. Went a little long tonight, but um, thanks for hanging with. Looks like I've got 16 people still watching, so that's pretty cool. 
Um, these videos are getting a lot of plays, like in the multiple hundreds of plays. So um, if this was helpful to you, please give it a like, share it, post uh, get, uh, post it on your, your wall, share it with your friends. I hope this is helpful. Next week, I'm going to be going live again, same time, same place, 9 p.m., God willing, Monday night. And um, I, I want to bring in a special guest. I'm not going to tell you who just yet, but um, I reached out to somebody and uh, he said he wants to do it. And then in the following weeks, I, I've got some more people I want to bring on. I want to make this more of a conversation. So um, uh, hope to join. hope you can join me next week. 9 p.m. same page and um thanks for thanks for tuning in god bless you guys and uh i've got to come up with a good sign off okay in the comments what do you think my catchphrase should be at the end of these videos in my blogs i do this is apologetics i don't know if that works for videos uh, my brother-in-law carlos thinks i should say stay classy people of god um but uh, <laughs> something like that but um, what do you think my catchphrase should be? Comment, and uh, I'll talk to you later.